0: This is KMTT. Today, on Mondays, we have a share of Harav Binyamin Tavori, who this year will be examining different responses, of to Chuvot from the major ones, from the 18th and 19th century. Harav Tavori. One of the most interesting uh, collections of Shelot to of the uh, 18th century was written by Harav Tzvi Hirsch Ben Yaakov Ashkenazi now if I would say that name to the general public, the general yeshiva public I question whether they would know who I'm talking about once I tell them the nickname the name of the, of the Sefer, it becomes obvi- much more obvious the Chacham Tzvi Chacham Tzvi was born in 1660. His father was known as a great Hamid Chacham. His maternal grandfather was also a great scholar. They had been in Vilna, but they escaped to Moravia during a Kazakh uprising in 1655. Rabbi Tzvi Ashkenazi, the Chacham Tzvi, first learned with his father and his grandfather in his basically home until approximately when he went to learn in about 1675 or so, when he went to learn in Salonica. And one of his purposes was to study the way the Sephardim learned. He stayed there for about two three years. Then he went to Belgrade. And gradually he accepted the Sephardi customs and manners. Although he himself personally was an Ashkenazi, Svihersh ben Yaakov Ashkenazi, he adopted the title of Chacham, which was, of course, a sfardi title. And his chuvos very often were signed by the name Svi Hirsh, Samechtet. Now, Samechtet, some people, is a sfardi way of signing your name. Some people interpret it as to be sfardi Tahor. Other people interpret it as Sefei Tav, Safo Yetov whatever it is, it's just interesting that the Chacham Tzvi signed his chuvos with that samikhtet. He moved to a city called Afin, where he learned, and his wife and family, his daughter, were killed when there was a an uprising by the imperial army of Leopold I. Chacham Tzvi escaped to Sarajevo, and he became the Rav of the Sephardi community. He came later to Berlin, had lived in Venice and Prague. He married the daughter of the Av Bezin of Altuna. And he stayed there for 18 years, where he taught in the local yeshiva, what was called a kleis He eventually became the Rav of that area, and he later moved to Amsterdam, where he became the Rav of the Sephardi community. He eventually left that community, stayed for a short while in London, in Emden, moved to Poland, and then he was appointed Rav of Lemberg, but he died there soon after he was appointed the Rav. He was very widely respected for his erudition the fact that he had experience in many many different communities and knew the commun- knew different communal customs was obviously also important he was asked to intervene in the controversy about shabtai tzvi and he became very much embroiled in that controversy there were personal attacks against him and eventually he left his community this is at the time when he was in Amsterdam probably because of this controversy he printed his in Amsterdam in 1712 his son is famous Rabbi Yaakov Emdin the author of 25 years ago, approximately, a newer edition of the Chuvas of the Chacham Tzvi were printed, where they printed the biography of the Chacham Tzvi as written by his son, Rebbe Yaakov Emden. Other people had written about the Chacham Tzvi. There was a biography written in English by Rabbi Pradmetsky, And there are other writings about his life in various monographs. We'll discuss today some of the chuvos that show partly the importance he had in consultations with other people, uh, as well as, say, referring to certain of the most interesting questions in his volume, but perhaps in general in the history of Literature of responsa literature, responsa literature. I'll begin by discussing very briefly a controversy that he was asked to adjudicate regarding the writings of Rev. David Nieto. The community in London, very interesting to read how it's written in the Hebrew, from the people that were in Kilat Kedosha, Londresh, B'Angli, Taira. Obviously, this is London and Angleterre. Angleterre, I think, is the way you say England in, in French. Angleterre, the land of England. The qu- people asked him about the writings of Rav David Nieto, who was the Rav of a community called Shari Shamaim, and he spoke about the na- the concept of nature and the identification of the concept of nature with God himself. Perhaps this is what we call today pantheism. And the question that was ad- addressed to Rechacham is, can you relate to these tshuvas? Are they considered within the parameter of Orthodox Judaism? Again, the reason I'm quoting this is to show the respect of Chacham Tzvi that this, sent, this was sent to him when he was a world famous Rav, and the community in London asked him to discuss the issue. He supported Reb Dov Nieto. Reb Nieto's book, of course, is called Mate Dan, or the subtitle would be the Kuzari Hasheni. It is written in dialogue, similarly to the original Kuzari of Rabbi Yudalevi. And he said that the opinions he expressed in that book regarding nature are correct. It also refutes certain philosophers who wrote different ideas about their understanding of Judaism. And therefore, this tshuva that was written in Altuna, in Tov Samich He, was... Received by the London community, and of course, Reb David Nieto eventually did become part of the mainstream of Jewish philosophy. I said before that some of the tshuvas of the Chacham Tzvi are not just very interesting tshuvas uh, locally in his uh, in his uh, writing, but they are perhaps some of the most interesting tshuvas in the history of the world. One of the chuvas that created a great controversy was Chuva ayin Daled. The story that was told there, this Chuva was written in Hamburg, in Tav Samechtet. The question that was written there was about a certain young worker in the house apparently who was cutting open the chicken in order to remove the insides a cat was adjacent to the table in which she was working. And the cat was hoping that some of the uh, parts of the chicken would fall and they could eat it. And then the, the the girl in question said she never found a heart of the chicken. The mother, the woman who owned the chicken, said, well, probably it fell on the floor almost definitely fell on the floor and the cat must have eaten it the girl said no she did not throw anything down except the spleen she definitely did not drop the heart now before the chicken was slaughtered it was obviously in good healthy condition when they checked it they didn't see any sign of um, anything wrong with it it seemed very very healthy it could walk, it could move like a no- normal chicken. Now, this question came up before the students, and they said it was strafe, because there was no heart. Nital <speaking in> haleif. <Hebrew> the, the Chacham Tzvi answered, anybody who thinks this chicken is strafe is mistaken. It's obvious that anyone who has, and I thought this is almost a play in words, kol asher bo leif chacham whoever has a, a wise heart, he's referring to, everybody must have a heart of some sort. Anybody who has a brain in his head would know that no, nothing in this world can exist at all without a heart. It's impossible that there was no heart. Probably what happened is that it, it was lost. And he said, this is so obvious that I don't have to bring any proof. But nevertheless, he brought a, he brought proofs to it. Apparently, this question engendered a tremendous debate. Some people thought, this is the case of nitalalev, a chicken without a heart, and therefore it would be treif. The next Chuva has, well, actually, two tshuvas later, has a letter, Shaila Ainvav from a certain Rav Naftali, who was a Kohen, they called him HaKohen HaGadol, the, ha, the head of the Bezdin of Frankfurt, the Main. And he wrote that he acknowledged the letters of the Chacham Tzvi, and he referred specifically to this question. And he said, it's obviously true that he would support the Chacham Tzvi. And he said, a certain a, a, a case like this came up to me once before, and I also poskened its mutter. Now, he, this fellow, Reb Cohen reported an interesting story. He said one time, a certain Dayan was visiting him, Reb Wolf HaLevi, and he said, and this Reb Wolf Levi said to this Reb Cohen that he has a Shulchan Aruch, a beautiful edition. And there are notes, handwritten notes, in the Gilayon, on the side of the Shulchan Aruch, and there's some very famous uh, halachas that were written by great Tamini HaChemim, he received this as a Yerusha from his ancestors. And on this din, they wrote that something important about this tshuva. So, Rabbi Neftali said to the this uh, Dayan, Rabbi Volf, hurry home, and bring me back the Shulchan Aruch. And they wrote he brought it and it said in the in the shulchan Aruch that this story occurred in the days of the maharalmi Prague. the question came before the maharalmi Prague, and he said it's obviously mutter. impossible for somebody to leave, to live without a heart and that's what the maharalmi prag wrote alah it's an old handwriting there are many other important things in this tshuva. So they said that they were very pleased to see that the Maralmi Prague agreed with their psak. Interestingly enough, that there's more Chuvas, there are more Chuvas that relate to this issue, and the Chacham Tzvi wrote, I thought nobody in the world would argue with me about this issue. But since I saw there are many arguments about it, I decided to write a tshuva to explain my viewpoint. Now, this tshuva goes on for a number of pages. Among the sources that he quoted originally and later on emphasized was a certain Zohar that the Zohar said that nobody can live without a heart. So, he points out that it's not that we possibly like the Zohar. Even though we do postulate the Zohar if there's no uh, contradiction found in the normal ha- Nigla halachic literature. But here, he said, it's not a question of relying on, on a psak halach of the Zohar. This is a fact. Nobody in the world could argue with the fact. Nevertheless, this issue of Nital Halev was a long discussion and he wrote a long, long chuvas about this issue. I read recently a book by... Rabbi Mark Angel, about the uh, dis- discussion of how to choose a new Rosh Hashiva, uh, the c- a book about a committee uh, testing Rabbanim. One of the issues they brought up was this case of Nital Halev. It seems to me that uh, the more uh, type of rational postkim who would rely on uh, some sort of common sense would say that this chicken is kosher. Nevertheless, that engendered an article, a, a, a topic, and a, a, a discussion. And apparently, uh, tr- many traditional halachists would argue this point with the chacham Tzvi. Another tshuva that is also known as one of the most uh, unusual tshuvas in the history of of of, of, of response to literature. Is a tshuva tzadi gimel a short tshuva, but the, the re, apparently it was not written in response to a specific question. But the chacham tzvi said, "I have a sifek, a person that was created by the sefer yitzira. In other words, somebody who knew how to create what we call today in English a golem." Could you count it for a minion? Now perhaps you say that the Torah said Israel, Israel. And this is not Israel, this is not a Jewish person. Or perhaps you say, since someone who raised an orphan, it's as if he gave birth to that person, the Tamil Khachamim that raised this golem, perhaps they're considered the descendants, the progeny of these Tamine Chachamin. Interestingly enough, the Chacham Tzvi brought a raya from the fact that Rav Zera in the Gemara in Sanhedrin Rav Zera destroyed the golem that was created. If you think that there would be a value of the golem that it be crea- cre- counted for a minion it's difficult to imagine that Rav Zayra would have destroyed it. You could argue, are you allowed to destroy a golem? Is it considered murder? So he said, no, that definitely is not considered mur- murder because only a normal birth. Ubar uh, Hanotza bemeimo, an embryo created in his mother's womb would be considered Shvich would be considered murder. But still, he would not have destroyed it had there been any value in having this now the son of Tzvi, the Chacham the Viak of Emdin also related to this Tshuva I would like to credit this volume that I mentioned before that was printed about 25 years ago uh, in Yerushalayim by a Rav Chaim Isaac Tukitsky he Addressed this question with, in his footnotes, and he quoted the the uh, Rabbi Yaakov Emden, who discussed this in Chuva number Pei Beis. Rabbi Yaakov Emden said, "I never understood what my father's problem was. A chera of a cotton are certainly Jewish, but because they have no das, they're not they're not counted for a minion. So how could these the golem?" Be better than a cherashot of a cotton. The golan could not speak. He certainly could not be considered any better than a cherashot of a cotton. But what's important to note is a certain biographical note that's added by Rabbi Yaakov Emden. He said, "I heard from my father, in other words, from the Chacham Zvi, that." there was a golem created by our grandfather. But when he saw that the golem was growing and getting great powers, he was afraid that the golem would destroy the world. Therefore, he removed the piece of paper or whatever parchment that he attached to to him, which had the name of God on it, and Once that name was removed, the golem collapsed. But before it collapsed, it really did damage to the grandfather. It scratched him in his face while he was trying to remove the name from the golem. I remember when I was very young, I read this tshuva, And I came running to my father. I was so excited. Can you imagine a tshuva about can a golem be counted for a minion? So my father's response to me was, in his history in the rabbinate, and he referred to me specifically, he always counted a golem for a minion. He never had a problem with it. Of course, he wasn't referring to the golem that was created by magical powers. But nevertheless, it becomes a very interesting tshuva. One of the more famous tshuvas of, of the Chacham Tzvi was, it has been quoted by many people in today's world because today it became a great halachic question. The question was, people who live in Chotzaretz but visit Eretz Yisrael, Yom Shei, Yom Tav, what are they supposed to do with Yom Tov now we know today that there are many opinions. Some people say you keep one day, some people say two days, some people say a day and a half. Among the great postkim that say you keep two days and uh, people from Chutzlar to visit Eretz Israel was the great posk of America, Rabbi Moshe Feinstein, and Igros Moshe. The Chacham Tzvi was very original at his time to give a psak that you keep one day. Now the only issue with keeping one day would be there is a Gemara that says when you travel from place to place you keep the Misham. you keep the Chumra of the place from which you came now he said in terms of davening what's the Chumra here? to daven like Yantif on a day that's not Yantif he doesn't see what the Khumra is, to daven one way or daven the other way. As far as refraining from Malacha on the second day, he said there's a problem of Baal Tosif. The only concept of Khumra HaMakam is a khumra that you're allowed to do. But here, if the whole community would move here, they wouldn't be allowed to keep that khumra So he claims that the khumra shouldn't apply here. But then he comes with a more famous argument that, let's go back to the original Gemara. The Gemara says that you should keep Yom Tov Sheini because you should deport yourself as your ancestors. Now the Chacham Tzvi, Ba'az, is a very interesting point. What happened in the time of the Gemara? In the time, let's say, when they really had Kiddush HaChodesh by the moon, by Bezdin, etc.? If a person from Chutzlaritz had been visiting Israel at that time, well, what would he have done? Would he have kept one day or would he have kept two days? It seems obvious he would have kept one day. He knew when Yom Tov was. He didn't know. Maybe in Chutz they did know, didn't know. But in Israel, he certainly would have kept one day. In Chutzlaritz, conversely, if a person had been in, in, an Israeli who went to Chutzlaritz for Yom Tov Sheini, He certainly would have had to keep two days because he wouldn't have known when Yamtov was. So if we would deport ourselves actually, the way they did originally, so it would depend where you are, not where you came from. This argument seems so cogent and so clear it's very difficult for me to understand why people disagree with this logic. Of course, the Chutzlaritz people who come to Eretz Israel, many of them not only find the logic compelling, but because it's difficult to keep two days when the entire community keeps one day, or one and a half days is also a solution that people don't like. More and more I see that people have been have begun accepting the psak of keeping one day. But conversely, I feel that my, from my experience that it's been the opposite. Very few Israelis think that when you're in Chutzlaritz for Yom Tov Sheini, you should keep two days straight. Now, I think that at one point this was the opinion of Rav Salaveitchik, that when you're in Chutzarts you keep two days, we're in Eretz Yisrael keeping one day, very similarly to the argument that was raised by the Chacham Tzvi. Interestingly enough, the tshuva of the Chacham Tzvi obviously has been rebutted, and people... Discuss and disagree with the Chacham Tzvi. The uh, editor this um, of the new edition that I mentioned of the Chacham Tzvi refers you to the Shari Tshuva and Simon Tov Tzadivav, the Mishnah Bruvier that disagree with the Chacham Tzvi. And we know many other poskim who disagreed with the Chacham Tzvi. In the other case of American of, of Israelis visiting Chutzlaretz, there, I know that the Shulchan Aruch says you can't do malach on Yamtav and most poskim think even B'tzinnah, you're not allowed to do malach on Yamtav in Chutzaretz, even privately. And the Mishnah Paskin that way. There, I find many Israelis who either are not aware, or think that really they can keep one day of Yamtav and Chutzaretz, which is certainly against the Chacham Tzvi and is certainly against the Shulchan Aruch as a, a, explained by Mos Poskim in the Mishnah Berurah. The last question that I, I, I'll mention today is an issue again of common practice that was interesting how it was addressed by the Chacham Tzvi and again, it's a question that was not brought to him directly, but he decided to publicize it in order to get his opinion known. And he said, the mitzvah of eating mora. Now, I want to let it be known that the Mishnah says, there is, you're supposed to eat chazeres. The Chachamim explained that's chasa. So he said, the primary identification of Chazeres and Chasa is what is called in Ashkenaz, perhaps it's German, Salat. In Spanish, Salata. Now, the Disraf Tukitsky, who published the volume, mentions that the Chok Yaakov quoted such an opinion but the Ritvaz in his commentary said he doesn't feel that this Salat is bitter he said perhaps in Germany it was bitter the Chassam Sulfur quoted says that perhaps our Chacham Tzvi is absolutely correct but you'd have to check the salad very well the this, this lettuce very well from worms And therefore, it might be better to take what you call chrein. The chazonish said you should use the chasa, but you should make sure it's bitter. So, you should take it while it's still bitter. But the chacham tzvi then goes on to to discuss other communities. And he said, there's a thing in many languages that's called taguma. And he talks about the custom of Italy, Germany, Spain, Portugal. And he says, therefore, there's no doubt that this salad, what we would call lettuce, uh, perhaps romaine lettuce, is the correct identification of chassa. Now, he said it could be that they didn't have it. In Poland, where the weather conditions are such that perhaps they didn't have any lettuce at the time of Pesach. So therefore, they didn't take it. Maybe they didn't know the different languages that identified chasa as salat. Therefore, they took chrein. Chrein, which is extremely bitter. The Chacham Tzvi says there's going to be a, a, a dire result of eating the chrein. Because many people who don't know the halacha know that it's so bitter, they don't eat a kazayas so if you eat it it's even bad for your health so they don't fulfill the mitzvah of mara. and even those people that are meticulous about eating a whole kazayas, there is a sakana in eating such an amount of kazayas of of chrein so any place like in amsterdam hamburg all the countries in germany I think that they should make sure that people say that you should not eat chrein. Anybody who is really wants to be observant of God's will should make sure to buy this altuga salat for the mitzvah of Mar, even if it's expensive. Interestingly enough, when I was a child in America, more people ate chrein. I remember that my parents used to give me chrein to eat and I simply could not eat a kazayis. When I was a little boy, I used to throw it away, so that nobody should see that I didn't eat it. But when I tried to eat it, I, I just couldn't eat a kezayis. When I was in yeshiva, people already told me, a that you can use romaine lettuce, and since then, my whole family has used this romaine lettuce. It seems that the Chacham Tzvi was one of the first people who identified moror with romaine lettuce, and apparently, I, this is the custom that's most prevalent today.